0: Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 144. This episode is with the program's director and performance coach at Altis, Nick Ward. Anyone that knows Nick's journey and his career so far will know that he is a massively experienced coach. And he speaks about his journey on the podcast. And you hear all the different sports and athletes and teams that he's worked with. So it was great to delve into his experience on this episode. We spoke about a number of different areas. Um, we spoke about the time in his career or the role that he felt that he developed the most as a practitioner. We spoke about technical, technological thinking without the technology. So how to adapt to certain situations Um, when you don't have technology available, whether it's testing or um, whatever it is, whatever aspect of performance you're trying to achieve. But if you don't have the technology available or the resources available, the um, approach that Nick takes, and he also gave some specific examples around that as well. Managing large groups, he spoke about. So trying to manage the individual within a large group and getting the most out for every single individual within a squad. And then also, problem solving. So, the problem first approach was something that he spoke about and how to go about solving problems within your role. So, another really, really good episode, I think. Um, Nick covered some great stuff in this episode and I'm sure you followed a lot of the work that Altis do as well and I know they've got some great stuff coming up too. So, make sure you go and give Nick a follow at Coach underscore Nick Ward on Twitter and also, you can go and follow Altis as well to keep up to date with everything that they've got going on. Just before we delve into the episode, I just wanted to give a very quick reminder to our upcoming networking event on Tuesday, the twentieth of July, five till eight pm at QPR Academy. Um, we are running an evening of networking, so you can come down, meet other coaches. We get, you can join in our networking tasks, and we've also got a presentation from QPR sports scientist, Kieran Dealey, on managing and profiling fatigue. Um, so to grab your ticket, go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop at the top, and just find the QPR uh, meeting there, and you can purchase your ticket and come and join us at that event. But we'll delve into the episode now, episode 144 with Nick Ward. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 144. This episode, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast, Nick Ward, Programmes Director at Altis. Nick, thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on. Cheers, Ben. I'm over the moon to be here. It's great to speak to you, mate. We spoke a couple of weeks ago, I think now, about um, what were some potential things we're going to talk about. And I think we've got some great stuff lined up. But just before we go into that, I think there's real value in people hearing about different stories, different career paths. So do you want to give us yours, your the rundown of where you've been, what you've been up to, and what led to your role at Altis?
1: Yeah, I'll make a promise here to try and keep this short, because you know, being being over 50 now, this could be could be long. But um, you know, like like most of us probably, you know, I was a pretty good athlete growing up, played a lot of soccer, football, and um, you know, was um goalkeeper um actually started coaching at quite a young age as well due to teacher strikes and things like that I kind of had to take over school sports and just kind of got those things going so I was at Oxford United for a number of years and kind of played youth team soccer for them and you know county and you know England school boys type stuff I was actually one of the first people to ask to be to be asked to go to Lillyshaw for that uh the academy that they had at the time, but uh, ended up on the reserve list and uh, so didn't, didn't quite get to go to that. But, um, you know, yeah, kind of pursued um, sports science. It was kind of a newfangled thing at the time. And I was originally wanting to look at PE teaching, but I wasn't 100% sure I wanted to be a teacher. Likewise, I wasn't 100% sure if I wanted to go into the military at the time from different experiences that I had. Abingdon, on Thames, where I'm from, uh, was an RAF town. So it seemed like a good idea to take a three year degree and then, you know, plump that extra year on the end. Should I, you know, either, you know, want to go the military route or, or go into the PE teaching route? And as it happened, I did neither in the end. Um, I did a lot of coaching, uh, did my FA, what was the FA prelim badge at the time, was part of, uh, sort of that B license, C license stuff as it was, conversions and things like that as well. Um Worked, you know, it was the Charlie Hughes Manual of Co- Coaching back in the day. And uh, Dave Houston was uh, my sort of mentor. And, you know, it was at the a time as well when I was able to do coaching courses on the li- along the lines of, you know, Peter Beardsley and players like that were on the same course as me uh, as well. Um, so, you know, that was very much up in Newcastle. Uh, a lot of stuff done there in those days. Uh, played for the university team. Um Left, went to Canada to do my masters. Uh, played for their varsity t- team out in Canada. Coached the women's team as the assistant coach. Coached the goalkeepers. Um, started getting all the S stuff kind of involved in all that as well. And you know, again, I was lucky that I had a very I had a chance to really implement it on the field. it Wasn't just although Canada is a little bit like America, very weight room focused when it comes to S and C. Um, you know, because of kind of my background and stuff, everything that I had kind of been brought into into the fitness training at the time was we didn't really have weight rooms, right? We had a few dumbbells lying around, but we had hills and we had some tires and we had each other as weight. <laughs> so, you know, you had to sort of really dive down to the principles of it. And, and over there, again, while the weight room was important, um, a lot of it was what we could do on the field to implement, you know, whether it be fitness or speed agility type work uh, as well. Um, at that time, I met Stuart McMillan at the University of Calgary in Canada, where I did my Masters, and um, that obviously turned into a long-time relationship and friendship, um, which you know now has, has evolved into Altis. And as intervening times, I was back in England, um, Northumbria University, I met a guy called Paul Winsper, who uh, was very influential with me. Um, he was a bit of a, slightly older than me, actually, but he was uh, below, below in, in the years, and I was sort of helping him through his degree. And he helped me a lot with his contacts, very forward-thinking guy up in the northeast. A lot of people like Nick Grantham and Duncan French, and those guys will know of of Paul Winsper really, really well. So he was at Newcastle United. And, um, you know, you might think it's friends, giving friends jobs, but, uh, you know, I had to write an application, had an interview with Rude Hillett um, and Alan Irvin and those people and got the academy role, which was a part-time role at the time. Um, that ended up blending with a lot of work at the University of Durham. They, they wanted to set up like a performance structure. You've got to remember this is all pre-EIS and kind of, you know, fully functioning EPL type, academy type things. But set that up with Paul at University of Durham when he went full-time in Newcastle. And it was, uh, you know, Durham County Cricket Club, First Team Academy, Northumberland Rugby, uh, England Netball Regional Academy, Poor United first team center of excellence Newcastle United Academy, um, and a bundle of other stuff. Uh, plus the university teams, you know, very early days of kind of make, sort of professionalizing, if you want, the setup of sports science, physio, uh, nutrition, all those kind of integrated areas into one particular project. You know, but clearly my time with Stu and the influences of him and Dan made me see things very realistically. And brought this program kind of together at University of Durham, which was an awesome time. And then, um, you know, to keep it short, I went to Sheffield Wednesday full time with Chris Turner, who was the coach at Hartlepool at the time. We had some successful years there, and that's where the life and career roller really kicked off. <laughs> um, you know, eighteen months there, we get fired, and things just kind of grew out of there. Built some great relationships and friendships in Sheffield because I was based there. And, uh, but then latterly went on to be the performance director of the Canadian bobsleigh skeleton teams, um, had to leave there for a couple of different reasons, came back to England, was then the National lead for the Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, as that kind of got scaled down, set up my own business, very heavily involved in Rugby League with Sheffield Eagles, a couple of sojourns back into soccer, um, there's some stories there to tell. Uh as you know, kind of this eight-year gap from being in it before to then, and what I saw had changed in it. it was kind of interesting. Um, and then you know, got the opportunity to come out to California in South Lake Tahoe and work for Altis with the then-, then owner John godina and uh, Dan and Stu and those guys to run this project here in South Lake Tahoe. Um, with COVID, as we all know, a lot of stuff got shut down. So very much my mind got turned to or um, well, my focus got turned to all our programmes that were non-track and field related, how I can contribute, you know, my educational background to the development and, and the ongoing kind of, um, I guess, uh, review and continual development of all our courses as well, as well as looking at a number of, like they say, non-track and field, you no know, on-the-ground programmes. Um, I'm heavily involved with Olympic skiing over here. Um, do work with two Olympic skiers that should be well, will be going to the next games and a bundle of young, young athletes in the area as well. So I am able to stay active as a coach uh, and practically involved and uh, should quite soon be, be helping out with some local soccer teams here as well, which would be great.
0: And obviously living an awful lifestyle with awful weather and scenery <laughs> and all the rest of it, really struggling out there. Because I know you showed me that, nicely showed me that on the phone last time we had the call as well, the, yeah. the awful views around you and all the rest of it. Yeah, you know what? I mean,
1: I mean, joking aside, it's, it's an amazing place to have landed and ended up and, um, you know, I, I just want to say how much I, I feel and respect what a lot of other people have gone through over the last 12 months. I mean, as a company, it's hit us, us hard with a lot of the face-to-face work that we've lost and we've had to pivot and adapt and be agile. Um, You know, I've literally become a marketing coordinator in the last 12 months and pivoted to to help manage a lot of that side of stuff as well, which has been really interesting and exciting and, you know, to learn new stuff. But, you know, I, you know, for me here, living here, it's been nowhere near as bad as a lot of other places, other countries around the world as well. So, you know, um, know, reaching out to anyone out there who's still going through it, you know, um, I don't want to be flippant or make too many jokes about it all because I know a lot of people are having,
0: still having a really tough time and still recovering from all this. No, that's a, that's a great point. And I was, I was just making a tongue-in-cheek tongue in uh, joke about uh, you showing me your views that I know you're currently experiencing right there, right now, which are not quite the same as mine. Um, <laughs> but just to pull you up on one thing that you said, Nick, you said about um, going back into football, soccer, from a period of being out of the sport and being in other sports and doing other Mm -hmm. things and having some realizations on some changes that had happened. Is there anything you can talk about um, in terms of those changes and and what you experienced at that point?
1: Yeah, I I would say, you know, when, when there was the likes of me and Dean Riddle and Paul and, and a bundle of other people that were kind of involved in football, we were fitness coaches. You know, I I was doing, you know, I've done my sports science stuff, and you kind of want to call yourself a sports scientist. And even if you were a fitness coach, they still called you a rocket scientist and things like this because you come out with fancy gadgets. I mean, our our most fancy gadgets at the time were the polar heart rate team system and some timing gates. You know, those were our fancy gadgets. Um, And, um, you know, uh, now you you kind of have sports scientists. Um, and then the strength and conditioning coaches where we were kind of one in all, but we were also delivering nutrition. We were doing the performance profiling. We had to wear a lot of different hats. So I think the roles have expanded and grown. And, I, you know, I can leave people who decide whether that's a good or a bad thing. And I think it depends what club you're at, right? I mean, you know, if you're at a top club, you've probably got all these different people with all these different roles where... You know, yes, I was at Newcastle United, but we're, it was very in the early emerging years of sports science and, and what we were doing there. And, you know, I guess, you know, for a lot of us who are, who, are, who are lower clubs, unless you've got great connections with universities and colleges, you know, you, you're kind of having to wear many different hats. So that was one big thing I saw was, was the emergent role of, of lots more fingers in the pie, if you like, and then having to manage those kind of interrelationships between a lot of different people. Um, a really heavy focus on physiotherapy and prehab it evolved over the years as well. And, you know, players spending 30, 40 minutes twiddling a lot of things around and playing a lot of stuff that I felt that with a real lack of intention or focus, you know, it was just, to me, it seemed to be a lot of stuff they were being given to do under this banner of prehab. Um, you know, to me, a lot of it wasn't really individualized or really focused. On, on on individual player needs or movement problems that, that you were trying to sort of work with at the time as well. Like I said, a lot of data analysts coming in now with GPS and stuff like that as well. Um, adding just adding more information to the picture, no no, no judgment on that, but more more information. And I'd say actually from the player's perspective, what I found different, and I think this is probably largely maybe largely down to social media, back when I first started, players weren't really into the weights and stuff like that. And your your discussions with them about that were much more about performance. When I went back into it, I found they all liked going to the gym in the afternoon to make themselves look good. You know? So I, I found that an interesting shift. So it was like, oh, great. They all want to go to the gym. But their reason for going to the gym wasn't my reason for wanting them to be in the gym. But then again, I take advantage of the fact that they were quite happy to go to the gym. So it was how you kind of, you know, got around then from, you know, hanging on the chest press machine, you know, watching certain um, people walk by, have conversations and, you know, because <laughs> a lot of the stuff again was was then commercial facilities, especially at lower division clubs, right? You're having to go and access commercial facilities. You haven't got your own place a lot of the time to set those things up as well. So managing those environments was, was a little bit different. But also when I went back into it, I'd been with rugby for quite a long time as well. And, you know, a very a very different mentality and focus between, you know, rugby players and and, and, and football players. You know, you've got your odd players that were really understanding of it and, and really want to do it and, and probably just weren't YouTube kind of show ponies for this sort of stuff uh, as well. So... You know, I think as well, the other thing I'd say is that I found that the coaches I was working with, there was a much different acceptance I found from coaches, actually, and maybe kudos to the coach education pathways that they'd been on, they're being more kind of into this and, and wanting this as part of their programs as well. So, you know, the shifts, you know, some things I've joked about, some things that I think are positive shifts, some things that just makes the area bigger in terms of the information we're having to deal with. And I guess, you know, you have to determine what really matters and what's important in your context and your environment and, and, you know, what's going to help those players stay healthy and perform better.
0: I think I think a lot of people agree there's been that change in culture, hasn't there, across the sport as a whole, probably over the last, what, 10, 15 years in terms of, S and C sports science, and I think some of that that you're talking about, like especially when things are added with a bit of a lack of intent and just doing it for the sake of doing it, sort of thing, that comes with that change, doesn't it? Until people understand a little bit more around the reasons why, or even more specifically around like what we need to be doing rather than just doing it for the sake of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, it's just
1: being purposeful. Um, and I think one of the things as well, and, and just, there was almost the, the development of the technology and the science, rather than bringing things together, seemed to separate people out more. Because people were focused on, I've got this nice, shiny piece of equipment, now what can I do with it? Rather than, hey, these are the problems I'm, I'm dealing with, this is the stuff I've got to manage, what can help me in managing this, you know? And so I found that that um, honest conversations with players um, seem to be a little bit false where back in the day, you know, I'd say to the Hartley players, look, I'm not going to make s mandatory, you know, um, come if you want. And, and, you know, I think building that trust and that relationship, those conversations were helped rather than me putting an iPad in front of them and telling them to give me their daily scores, you know? I think there's a pro- there's a pedagogical process here that you have to work with to, to build that trust, that relationship, that understanding of that data. And that was the other thing. as one I think a lot of players, when they came back into it, saw data as a threat, saw data as something which was going to pinpoint them for whatever reason, rather than recognizing that you've got to You've got to layer all this in, in in, in, in a trusting environment. And they really need to know why is that going to be important to me rather than just important to you. And sometimes that's that balance between, well, of a lot of clubs now because of their links with colleges and universities, there is a lot of research going on and, and and the players then become kind of passive, what I'd call passive recipients of sports science rather than active participants in it um and, and i found that had grown a lot more as well um where we just weren't having great conversations um so in a way we've got to be mindful of how that technology didn't drive a wedge although we thought it was it's better to bring everything together and give us great information i don't know what do you think do you think that's sounds sort of appropriately saying that
0: yeah no i agree i think th- this is something that's come up a few times that um sometimes we hide behind tech and data and things like that. And we forget that, like you say, being in roles where you don't have that, um, obviously Mm -hmm. you've got to adapt your approach. And you could argue one's better than the other, whether you've got that available to you or not. But obviously you can still have a lot of tech and data and things available to you, but not do as as effective a job as when you don't have it, can't you? And that was one thing I was going to ask you, Nick, as well, actually, is, In your career, can you pinpoint a time where you feel that you progressed the most as a practitioner, or maybe a time or or a specific role, and why as well?
1: You know, i have to put sort of um, look at that in context of different stages of my development. Um, You know, going from being an undergraduate student, but coaching a lot, was great. I was, I was, you know, I was, I was coaching with Barney Jones up at Northumberland Football. I was then later coaching the the women's team, and I was, you know, involved in still playing myself as well. So, just not being a sports scientist or a strength conditioning coach, but actually coaching sport itself, that was important. And 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 I lost that for like a ten year chunk where I was just doing the S side of stuff and wasn't necessarily coaching. Having kids then really helps because you start coaching their teams and you get back into coaching again. And and what do coaches see and think? And why why I'm saying that's really important for it, it helps you develop a, a, a set of language skills that make sure you don't start just professing verbal diarrhea at people to make you sound really, really smart. You're able to sort of bring it down to the right language level, just communication. I'm not saying it's dumb or whatever. It's just the fact of communication is that you need to understand what I'm talking about, and I oh, need to understand. Always though,
0: isn't it? Yeah,
1: exactly. I need to understand your meaning of things, hmm. you know, and and you know, so that so that was important. Then the next bit was um, going to do my masters in Canada, um, going abroad for at the time I would say there wasn't the depth of what I felt experience of sports science, been involved in sports in my perception that that really in the UK at the time. So that trip was great. And of course, I ended up meeting Stuart McMillan and Dan Papp and those guys. So I I did my master's based more, not necessarily on the program itself, but what was the broader experience this was going to give me as well. And so, you know, there it was. Yes, I, I worked with the football teams, but it was, you know, there was winter sports. There was a whole plethora of stuff that exposed me to. So, extending my education by the master's degree um, was enormous for me. That, that had a huge influence. But again, I was probably very fortunate in where I chose to go, having people like Walter Herzog and Ben O'Neill on the biomechanics side. Uh, Dr. Kerry Cornier on the exercise psychology side. And that was interesting because that got me into the whole idea of behavior change and relationships and those things very, very early in my career uh, as well. Um, So that was an important kind of chunk. Um, Being able to teach then also came in with that. So I had periods where I might have been in in an F.E. college. I lectured at Northumbria University for a while as well. So having those teaching opportunities obviously got me down into the weeds of a lot of the science, but how do they actually deliver that and speak? And that also got me to sort of see that as an academic discipline, this stuff's great, but how do I sort of talk about it in a practical sense? Let me give you a really simple example. Everyone was being taught about VO2 maps. I was teaching this health module, and it was about, you know, using, assessing VO2 maps on a bike, uh, and I'm like, okay, great. So you've now assessed VO2 max on a bike, and this health person is going to their gym where they have a stairmaster, you know, a Versa climber, a treadmill. What now? How do you take this information and make that relevant to them? On, on this test was on a bike, you know. So you've got their VO2 max. So again, drilling it down to really practical, in my hand ways of making this stuff relevant to you as a coach and a practitioner. So that became important. The, the five years at the University of Durham, having a role where I could fail and take risks and chances. Um, like I said, I mean, it would be unheard of now for one individual to have, to have held so many contracts um, in, in so many different sports. And to be quite honest, then I look back at that time and I think I didn't have a clue what I was doing, really. Uh, you know, I, I go, wow, there was a lot of uh, Dunning-Kruger going on there. <laughs> I guess my enthusiasm and belief and confidence led me to have good chats and conversations. And based on principles, I, I guess I had no operating system to go in with. And I think that period of time helped me then start to shape kind of an operating system, a philosophy. You know, that that takes a while to really get there, although I I spent all this time with Stu and on my master's degree and things as well. So that period of time with so many different exposures to so many different people, coaches and sports, helped me shape that that operating system. And I think now people are given an operating system uh, from their studies and their academic stuff. You know, maybe I'm wrong with that, but... I think they don't necessarily have to think about that for themselves. Here, this is what you must do. You go in, you've got to test this, 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 and this. And then this is exactly how you train people. Here's the plan. Here's the model. But where that period of time for me was very emergent in in things I had to think about and my my learning as well. Um, So like I say, stages. And then I had a period of time as the performance director for the Olympic team. So that was, again, a huge learning experience politics olympic organizations managing a five and a half million dollar budget uh getting into equipment and technology which i never really got into before so much with bob slay you you sit in this thing and on the skeletons and going into wind tunnels and you know all these kind of design technologies and things like that again was another big big learning jump for me so a, a number of different stages um one of the biggest learning times is when i was unemployed I was out of work, you know? And um, many friends out there who may or may not listen to this, thank you very much because they supported me. They helped find me little bits of work. You know, some months, man, I was bringing home 300 pounds. That was it. You know, Um, having a walk to the dole office, you know, um, was, you know, right now, it it still gives me this, like, heart pang when I think about it, about how horrible that experience was you know, walking into those, into those centres to do that. But it's an experience that I've had and makes you determine never to be there again, yeah. you know, uh, as well. So, you know, different sort of leaps and bounds, forward steps, backward steps, in, in terms of things that kind of really helped me grow. And then, you know, some significant individuals along the way that either were with me for a year or two or sometimes maybe a week, but they just said one or two things that kind of shifted my paradigm a little bit, or help me refine that operating system a little bit as well. So, sorry, yeah, I guess in my length of my career, not not one time, but but a number of times that really helped me kind of jump chasms. It wasn't slow progressions; it was like boom that took me to this place quite quickly because of those experiences.
0: I hope that's really beneficial for people hearing that because I think even if it's one of the experiences that someone's going through something similar right now, um, or if, if it's a few, then I just hope they realise. Because the reason I wanted to ask that is because mm. it's not always the current role that we're in that we're progressing the most, is it? Like you, when I speak yeah. to people, they always refer back to a, a role or a time or a few roles or a few times where they had certain challenges, like, exactly like you've gone through there, that progressed them and that allowed them to develop skills in their current role and I think that's really important and I I, I think it is also really important talking about one thing you spoke about there being in between roles having that pressure the financial pressure because that's never spoke about is it um in terms of the mindset how you deal with that um obviously the people talk about we've spoke about interviews and things like that but Going through that time is stressful and that's um, that's a time that can cause stress for both you, your family and anyone else as well. So I think that is really important to, to talk about those times as well. Just a very quick update on our online community. If you want access to over 40 hours of webinars and presentations from a number of different coaches across the world of sports science and strength and conditioning, focusing on different topics around football fitness, go to footballfitfed.com click the community tab at the top and sign up. It will give you one month free. Following that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. You'll get continued access to all the current content on the community, as well as new webinars and presentations that we have coming up, including some of our uh, 2021 presentations from our networking events, um, the QPR event we've got coming up very soon, but also some other events that we're going to be announcing very soon as well. So you get access to all of that on the community. And I have mentioned in previous episodes, we are doing an upgrade on the community very soon as well. It is in the process of being done. So if you join now, you will um, automatically get your profile uploaded, upgraded even when um, that upgrade takes takes place. So go and check it out. Go to footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there, grab yourself a free month and see what it's all about. Here's part two of the podcast with Nick Ward.
1: Well, no, there's little things, Ben, like um, so we get fired from Shepherd Wednesday and, and being kind of new to that world. All of a sudden, I didn't realize that the car that I had and the rent they were paying was taxable. So next minute, I, I, have, to, I have to go to court to fight for a payoff. Because they just want to fire me, and that happened. You know, and the next time that happened, I'm now more experienced, right? Um, and recognizing that I didn't know these things were taxable. So next minute, I got a payoff, but then I got a fifteen thousand dollar tax bill arrived as well. You know, and again, you got to remember, I wasn't working. Why was Shepherd Wednesday? They weren't the top club at the time. It wasn't like I was on six figures, right? I mean, I tell you, I was on thirty two grand plus bonuses it was nice when we were in the top six, but when we weren't, you know, and that wasn't very often There, we were rebuilding a club, you know? And so, you know, there's a lot of us that are not on those sort of, that sort of money. We don't get the big payoffs, you know, that other people might get when they lose their jobs as, as part of that management team. And I think it's also important to think, how did you acquire the job? Nearly all the time for me, other than maybe with Paul Winsper at Newcastle, I was always brought in as part of the coaching staff. I wasn't brought in by the medical staff. It seems like you're much safer in your role if you come through the medical department because they tend to stay in place. But for me, I was it was always coaching contacts that I kind of got my role. So if that coach went, I went. You know, it happened on two or three occasions, you know, as well. So um, yeah, they are they are tough times, you know. Luckily, I have a Wife that stuck by me in all this, and um, you know, gave me the encouragement to, to sort of grow and you know, see me bounce around a, a bit with this stuff. Um, but I think you know, if you can, if you can stay sane, gather the the help of friends and colleagues, and and you know, still, it's that operating system really. Like I said, as that was growing, that kind of kept me going. That that. You know, end of the day, any of the circumstances where we lost our jobs, not really down to anything I was doing, you know, uh, most of the time you, you really didn't have the time to make that much influence on stuff. But I think also that also ties into the, the bit we spoke about earlier about the personal relationships, you know, as well. It's if you've gone in and just done the science and, done the, and you haven't really spoke to many people and created, you know, an open discussive environment, that's probably not going to help you when, you know, the axe might look like it's going to fall as well. So I'm not saying yeah. we can try formulations because all oh, that will help me keep my job and I want to be an agreeable person rather than a, a argumentative, disagreeable person, you know, in, in a nice way. Um, you know, that you do have to blend blend both of those because the relationship will will take you a long way, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I think the other thing from that is, like, and, and this is our – why you're able to sort of pull out all these factors and in each role is optimizing each opportunity you get isn't it um and that's where i wanted to sort of take this is that regardless of what club you're at what standard you're at like there's there's loads of um skills that you can develop and we know that you've already spoke about there's, there's politics involved there's uncertainty in jobs there's like um there's certain restrictions whether it's financial whether it's facility wise there's all sorts of factors that you're facing every single role that restrict you from doing certain things isn't there we had a great conversation a few weeks ago about this and i wanted to get you to talk about it on the podcast in terms of technology because some Mm -hmm. of the stuff you went through was brilliant but i just wanted to tap into your mindset just to start with that when you're in those um when you're in those roles at those times and you're facing all these challenges, your mindset around problem solving. So when you when you have these problems in front of you, what what are the sort of what's your mindset, what are the stages you go through to solve that problem? And then if we could dive into some of the examples that you went into on the phone, I think that'd be brilliant.
1: You might have to remind me of some of those. I will do, I will do. Let's see where we go. Well, first of all, I think, again, it comes back to um, understanding your operating system. You know, what's your kind of, uh, I call them, um, I'm looking for quick wins when I first go in. What are my quick wins? And your quick wins aren't going to be taking on the biggest challenges. It's looking for the low-hanging fruit initially. So for an example, a quick win is just structure and reorganize the warm-ups a little bit better. You know, uh, and that doesn't mean doing 30 minutes of prehab lying on a mat. All right. It's it's that that might come a little bit later. So first of all, is where's where's your quick wins? Don't necessarily go in on the first day and be up front and center. Actually try and establish with the coaches and the players. Look, um, give me give me a week or so to watch what you normally do. Or don't go in and try and change too much too soon. And, and I'm, I'm saying that out of experience of someone who has tried to change too much too soon. And while in the long run that became successful, it still puts certain noses out of joint or affected early relationships. So it's a real balancing act on that. So operating system, um, where are your quick wins? So I kind of say, okay, how do I get into the fast lane? You know, where do I go? Vroom, this is going to take from A to B really quick. And get me some kudos and understanding, and build some positivity with the coaches and the playing staff. Part of that is um, spend time hanging around with the coaches. In the part when we're working part time and we've got contracts for jumping around on, it's like right, I'm done at six o'clock here. I've got thirty minutes to get over to this place. I'm going to get to my next job. It was really Mark Aslett at Sheffield Eagles that changed my mind on that because I, I missed that at newcastle united academy i wasn't very good at that i was moving from while we're all based at durham university i was moving from Hartlepool, newcastle university teams cricket i was out of there i didn't spend the time sat down basically having the cup of tea and, and graham fowler who was head of the cricket center of excellence at durham always said never miss out that, that opportunity for that that beer at the bar You know, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound very professional. You know, I was used to kind of proper formal meetings. So part of that fast lane is who are the significant people you should be making sure you find time to get to know them better? You know, Um, and that became really important. Uh, Significant players, the influential players, spending time with the medical staff. So you have to build in that, um, that overhead. That you, know, you might be getting your 20 bucks, 30 bucks an hour, uh, but there's an overhead. You've got to put more time in at the beginning. It's like a salesman, right? For every sale you get, you've probably walked 10 streets to get that one sale, but that one sale makes it worth it. So you have to put that groundwork, that legwork in early doors, I think. Um, and you know, this came from Doc Smith and, and Dr. Steve Norris and my master's degree was like, they said sometimes when they went into Olympic teams, they would do nothing for six months other than observe. Now they had the luxury of doing that, right? We're being employed because we're expected to go in and do something. But sometimes find out what it is they've already been doing and maybe keep doing that and then ask them questions of that. Because um, what the other thing about that flip from what we spoke about earlier from you know when I was first, and talked to later, is that, They've already now had a lot of experience of different people coming in with their great crap pot ideas, right? Where's the average here? Where's the norm? Where's the mean stuff? Because whatever you come in and change at the beginning, you now have to be persistent and consistent with. Because any team or squad of players see you, see you um, wobble on anything, they're, they're down you like a, like a pack of wolves, right? So if you try to change too much too soon, you're asking yourself to create a stable environment on top of chaos very, very quickly. And and it's not achievable. So operating system, fast lane, where are my quick wins? You only going to understand that through conversations and observations. And sometimes a quick win is don't change anything. Keep it as it is or keep parts of it as it is. The second part for me then is what I would call, um, wh- where are the bumps in the road? The sleeping policemen. I, I had to change it over here to speed. They didn't know what sleeping policemen are over here. So I changed that. <laughs> a little bit. But You know, there are things that you can approach with caution, you know? Um, okay. There's some discussion going on there. Okay. I see there's a power play going on over here. Um, you know, um, a big one of course working in with the medical teams if you're a strength and conditioning coach being brought in is treading on toes you know um immediately i find with medical teams um they let you know where you sit because they're clearly highly much more highly intelligent than we are as strength and conditioning coaches um you know we just have to understand there's ego and stuff involved there and don't let our own ego get in the way of that. I mean, one example of that was when I introduced dynamic warm-ups to Newcastle United Academy. Now, I know everyone's going to go, what do you mean introduce dynamic warm-ups? We've got to remember back then, it was still go for a 10-minute jog, sit on the ground, static stretch for 10, 15 minutes, and off we go. You know, doing things dynamically or what they thought were ballistically was causing soreness in the players. So I'd have discussions with the physio about soreness that was being caused because well if they're getting sore from this it can't have anything to do with football because if they're playing football all the time you know this stuff shouldn't be making them sore if it's specific to football without you know we know we can understand about you know prime usage of muscles and support muscles and things like that so i mean paul winster again helped me out with that one he said don't die on this hill so pick your pick your battles don't die on your on this hill and we're often then forced um, you know, this is, a, again, an example of approach for caution. Take a breath and don't fall into the expert trap of feeling like you've got to justify yourself. But you're the young coach in there. You're a few years out as an experienced physio and you're super enthusiastic about what you're doing. You, you want to you know, I'm really I really want to learn. I'm great at this. You know, I'm, I'm really here to help. But you splurge rather than say, tell me more about why you think that for so I've learned to kind of approach that sleep and police with caution, but sometimes recognize the vehicle in front of me about to put their brake lights on. They want, me, they want me to smash into their rear end. All right, so take another breath, let them go over it and then ask another question. Don't let yourself be put on the back foot. So, um, and it's not about putting them on the back foot, it's just engage in discussion. Can you go down some layers that of critical thinking rather than you being forced to sort of justify your entire world all of a sudden. So understanding some of the, you know, the critical thinking processes um, you know, become really important there to help you sort of navigate those, those bumps in the road. And then there's potholes. You don't want to put your car in a pothole <laughs> because you're stuck and you can't go anywhere. So what are the re- what are the real red flags right now? You know, they're there. It's going to take a little while to get an understanding of them, you know, um, people will talk about, you know, um, the, um, locus control type concept. Um, you know, what can you influence? What can you control? What's your sphere of influence? Those things. It's always look good to look at these situations and that, you know, you want to go and change it and you know, you can, but can you really just back off a little bit? Because sometimes again, just let things, as we know, for very nonlinear, complex systems approach, changing one thing could change everything. And you're never going to be able to predict of any certainty how that changes stuff so you know recognize that things happen non-linearly and and that other changes people are making are going to have a knock-on effect to you as well so sleeping policemen sorry uh quick wings low-hanging fruit fast lane sleeping policemen and, and potholes are things that i look at um so yeah i've kind of prattled on a little bit there's anything you want to draw on there before i sort of talk about the technology side more specifically
0: Yeah, well, I was just going to say that I think that's great because I think coaches that have been in at different clubs in different roles will be able to probably relate to that in the fact that they've probably approached each circumstance very different because of a number of different reasons. So Mm -hmm. you've said there about it might be um, certain staff members having their way of doing things and you just don't want to go in and change things straight away. Or you might go into a role, I think you said your, your role at Durham where you said you could, you could fail, you could make mistakes. Coaches might have had that sort of environment as well, where it's free reign, it's a blank canvas, go and do what you want, go and try things. Obviously, at a level of athlete that um, it's not going to be as impactful. You're not working with Olympians at that time or anything like that. Um, so I just think that's, that's quite a nice way for people to reflect on. The, if they have been through a, a number of different roles, think about the different ways that you've approached it. Because also going into the next role, there might be a few different challenges ahead. And then that gives you that gives you that sort of, um, you can preempt your approach a little bit then in terms of the things to look out for. The, like you say, the low hanging fruit or your non-negotiables that you want to take with you. But yeah, I love I love the sleeping policeman. I love the pothole analogy. I think that's quality, but yeah. Um, the potholes actually come from me and sewer in
1: Jamaica over a over millennium. And literally, every time you were in a vehicle, there was like 15 potholes right in front of you. And that, that just came into my language. Like that, that journey that day, we were taking around the island going, we're going to die. <laughs> we're going to hit a hot pothole or we're going off the cliff here. And so, yeah, that, <laughs> just, that just came into my language from that. But two things there that you mentioned as well is like, it's very unlikely these days that any athlete you work with, and I'll caveat that in a second, has had zero experience of coming into contact with training or sports science. They have some experience. I think it's really important to be aware of that, that their experience is not your experience. You need to find out because that then sets up their belief system, you know, their attitudes to it. What do they already think works? What do they understand? Now, even I can go back 25 years, and well, people weren't really exposed to it then. Yes, they were. Sports sciences are new. Testing and training, and bringing in a weightlifting coach or sprint coach to clubs—that's always happened. That's happened for millennials, right? That's gone on. So, at every single level, someone had experience. Now, I think of England Golf when I was working with them. You know, Tracy may not have personally had experience. But dad, who's also coach, has done or thinks he knows what's right. So it's not maybe just the individual. It's looking at who's their sphere of influence. You know, Altus, we often talk about the performance trinity of athlete, therapist, coach. You know, who, who forms their triangle of people as well. So having some awareness of that, I think, is, is super important. And then, like you said, you go from situation to situation. I can go into a club now and go... Oh yeah, you're you Caroline from that job that I used to have. Yeah. So I I I know what you're about. <laughs> you know? Um you're you're gonna be stereotypes are there for a reason, right? They're not 100 percent true, but you do go in immediately, you can kind of place people in kind of personalities of what they're what they're going to do to you. Um and I was often told beware of the noisiest person in the room. You know, and that often yeah. is players as well. The one that's up to you, wants all the information straight away, is always there. You know, it, it's actually, you know, that's, that's the one that you go, okay, that's not the person you're trying to win over. Yeah. You know, it's the other people around in the room as well. You need to be observant of.
0: Yeah. I've I spoken to Damien Hughes a couple of times on the pod, podcast and he talks about cultural architects and they're mm-hmm. the ones that you're trying to sort of tap into within the squad and, they'll have the biggest impact. And I when I talk about that, I always think of like the 90s Man United team with Roy Keane and people like that. I don't know why, but I just think that so many characters in that squad and you can sort of picture exactly who he means by that. Um, yeah. The other thing I was going to say about that, Nick, in terms of the influences on their experiences in s and sports science, social media comes into this a lot now, doesn't yes. it? Because yeah. you get a worldwide view of all different athletes, more different sports and you get, all right, it's a snapshot. We know that, but you get that snapshot of what is going on. Whereas before you, you probably couldn't, it wasn't as easy to get, was it? Well, I know it was going on in terms of different, um, experiences, but that, that is a big factor now that they might have formed their opinion on what they need to be doing by this athlete is doing this or Ronaldo does this. You're like, um, that that can have an influence, can't it?
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and as we know, so much of social media is, hey, do this exercise, you know, for your glutes. Not why am I doing it for my glutes, right? And obviously, with the with the with this year as well, as so many people starting up on social media and and doing their free videos, what tends to happen is knowledge goes back to the base again, and so they're now they're now exposing themselves, and if they do get a, a big kind of you know viewership. Um, where this group of people may have been has been brought back to here in terms of their thinking about the problems. So it no longer is a problem first approach. You know, it becomes, you know, again, what exercise have I got? Let's get it done. So I think to try and encourage people to have a problem first approach, what, what am I trying to manage here? And we're very careful about, we don't fix problems, we manage them. Because fixing them puts you in a frame of mind of that you've, you've changed this thing 100% we're never gonna know that, right? We never know what 100% difference or something ever is gonna be. So you, you manage a problem along just to a, to a higher state of functional or health or performance. And again, not really knowing what other things that, that suggested along the way, you know, too. So um, problem first um, then ties us into that technology component a little bit. You know, how what do I need to help manage, manage this problem? um and you know in in some cases there might be a need for very very specific technology again you know what i recognized when i went back to using that when i was using the polar heart rate system back in the day was that in order for me to do my job really really well i didn't have an extra three hours a day to process all that data me personally you know and while technology has become much more available and widely used, uh, and, you know, of course, it's it's got a lot more um, high-powered, um, there's still an overhead to using it all. And I think that's where a lot of the companies have tried to reduce the overhead of time spent then to process the information. How do we get you more quickly to the information that you use? But in doing that now, some coaches are now losing the mental process of how that information has been derived. So they don't necessarily understand its substance, where it's really come from. It just becomes a number, you know? So it's a real playoff, right? Because also um, in getting those numbers now, do you understand the algorithms and the back end of the technology? How are they deriving that information? Is that any better than just the junk mat I used to use? But now I'm spending $3,000 more on getting, getting the data I used to have. So I think, again, it's just when it comes to looking at technology, just ask some deeper questions of it, you know, especially about how, how is that number I'm actually getting derived? Uh, how valid truly is it? How have I set up my environment to make sure I'm getting the reliability that I need? And then all the time spending doing this, and this is a great conversation I had with Dr. Matt Jordan over force plate testing. He said, Sometimes, Nick, just stick them on the leg press, left leg versus right leg. If yeah. one's a lot weaker than the other, you've got a problem, you yeah. know? Because have a guess what? The force plate's probably going to show me that too. And I get yeah. lots of other fancy numbers. there's probably a way simpler answer here. And part of that then is considering the the idea of representative design. Where are they going? Well, again, the problem first approach is what's their context? So me training skiers, am I working with a seasoned Olympic skier or am I working with my 14-year-old skier? The level of data that I need is going to be very, very different. I can't apply the same operating system, you know, from this person, to this person because where they are right now is different. The information I need to program for this person and this person is different. But also the feedback I get back from this person and this person is different. So data might give me a whole range of really nice information that might help steer the monitoring of where my athlete is going and their progressions. But the conversation I have with this Olympic athlete and getting that information off them can be very, very informative, more than maybe off the 14-year-old, their ability to give me feedback. So I have to build, I build that process into this as well, alongside the kind of the, the data acquisition. Again, make them active participants, not passive recipients in that process and build up their ability to to be better, at, at being more aware of their body, what they notice in the movements. And that's why your coaching obviously comes in And that's why I think use of video um, has kind of come in and out of our profession a lot. I get my young athletes to video themselves a lot and just let them tell me what they see. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Involve that a little bit, you know?
0: Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And this, this came from a conversation that we had around, um, I think I'd had a few conversations with people and two main things stuck out that it was the um, sort of struggle without being able to afford some tech and we, we had a chat about some of the approaches that you took around, um, speed. And we also spoke about some of the politics involved around like doing testing at certain times and the need for testing certain athletes and stuff. And the fact of the matter is when we to cut a long story short, we, we, we came back to the fact of if we're not retesting and it's not, um, yeah. impacting our, our training, then like, do we need to do it? And we know that sometimes we do need to do it because of other factors, but, um, that was one thing we spoke about. So I'll get you to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that reminds me now because
1: um, I've just become a devotee of the, the house series. Oh, you know, yes. Yes. Yeah. And um, I know mean, I, I know I'm late to that series, but at David one Lewis. time, I think he, he shouts out something like, um, well, what are you go- what are you going to believe? The tests or the symptoms? And that. We can keep looking at the numbers but not look at what's immediately in front of us, you know? And the big thing that Dan Path is like the greatest gift any coach can do is observe. And he said, you know, we've we've been doing movement screens for decades. It's called watching the warm-up, you know, Uh, and become much better observers of movement, of biomechanics. And, you know, I know some purist biomechanists out there go, oh, the coach's eye, it's it's a myth. And... But everything's got ranges and bandwidths, right? You know, because if you're not developing your coach's eye, you're not then going to see the problems that you need to manage. So developing the coach's eye isn't about me then knowing everything. It's about me getting to a point where I go, I don't know what's going on here. I can't see anything. It it leads you to ask better questions. So don't just keep looking at the computer screen, the data. Yeah. You know I mean? Years. When I was working with the people at to Jump and stuff like that, like that's what they ended up putting the camera on the Op to jump for. Because I said to them, you can't just look at the number of the jump, you've got to look at how they're jumping. You've got to look at their body language. And they took that idea on board and stuck the camera on it. So you actually had the video of them jumping and the data of them jumping. Because we know the human body, let's call it dynamic systems, will find a way of accomplishing that task. Now Your job as a coach is is the performance of that task devoid of the quality of how they've achieved that task. Now, depending on what camp you sit in, movement quality leads to movement performance, right? The movement quantity. Now, again, we can muscle our way through something and get something done, but at what cost to the body if that's repeated over a period of time? You know, there, there is, we know from our knowledge of biomechanics, kinesiology, it's the blend of those two things that help us move towards an individual's unique way of achieving a certain task. And if they're doing that in a way which they never complain of any niggles, you know, the performance is looking solid. So their health, performance and health are on a parallel continuum for us at Altus, then you're on a good path. But yeah. if performance starts to dip or they start to complain about niggles of some kind, then you then you go back to your observations again. And video, again, I think is still something which is really beneficial
0: to take lots of video of how your athletes perform. Because because when you're doing that, you're not disregarding the tech. You're not disregarding the data. You're not solely looking at it, are you? You're looking at the whole picture. And like you say, it's a, it's a lot more accessible for a coach at any level to get some video of their athletes and it is to use force plates or whatever whatever bit of tech that we referred to because it's so accessible and i know you yeah. gave a great example when we were on the phone there i don't know if you can remember it about the speed the speed gates yes so um, certain clubs that might have speed gates obviously that's great they can use them but if they don't you gave an example of, I can't remember, uh, was it at Hartlepool that, or was it, was it before that? Um,
1: yeah, it was actually, it was a number of things, actually. It was at rugby first. It was working with Durham County Rugby. Um, and I was doing also with England Rugby in the Northern region. I was part of uh, like a head coach education team, along with a guy called Colin Sanctuary. uh, I was out in Australia now. Um, so we delivered some stuff there on that. And, you know, Oh, it's great that you guys have got the timing gates, but we haven't got those at our club, you know? And at the time there was like a simple run to the 22. What's your time that a lot of people were doing? I thought, okay, how how can I work with that? So what I did was I, um, from the 22, and I then put cones every two yards and then it changed to two meters because I got with the, the, the current age. Um, different colors. So when, and then you can have a line of players upon the timing gates, right? Unless you make it competitive, you have three or four going at the same time, unless you've got three sets of gates, you can only time one person. And let's not forget about going back to how well they run in a bit as well. Because again, it's not just about the time, it's looking at how well they're running. Um, so what I was able to say was, right, you know, again, it's crude, right? It's crude, but you, your player when you said go and a whole bunch of players are sprinting now and you shall stop at six seconds on your clock i found anything less than six seconds was, was too variable um but we still know that a 30 meter time is so highly correlated to 100 meter time so distance doesn't really matter too much but six seconds let's say or eight seconds or whatever and you said stop the player would then come over on a board or whatever, even just in their head, what colour cone did you pass last? So if they passed a 22-metre colour cone, and that was in six seconds, you now got a velocity, okay, average velocity, but you've got some kind of marker in the sand. And then, okay, your job now is to try and get to the next colour. And whether you went one-metre demarcations, two, whatever, right, it just came up via a very simple, crude way of creating a, a timing gate system. Um, in a certain set amount of time, what distance did you cover? And yeah. it, you, know, you can get through a lot of players at the same time, but they tell you which color cone they went past, and you've got some kind of scoring. And I did the same with med ball work and stuff like that as well. So, you know, three basic med ball exercises, you know, um, uh, forward, forward toss with for a jump, rotational toss overhead um, and then sometimes a backward one but that got a little bit sketchy with squads and players not knowing where the balls were going but yeah. you know it would be a case of how far did you throw it well what, well, what, see where you threw it go and put a marker down you know and then that bit of the session was over and then I'd, I'd literally go along afterwards get the tape measure out and mark where players medicine balls had landed if I was doing jump work, plyo work for, for, for horizontal plier work really good article i read recently actually from um texas uh tech university guys they're talking about you know the kind of rebirth so i'm going on a tangent here the rebirth of the horizontal jump because obviously we do a lot of measuring this there's a good article in there mind me to send that to you but again even with the jump training you can you can you know get them putting cones out and here's the thing all of a sudden there's there's an intent to do better yeah in that you know and Go back to quick wins and, and changing the warm ups. What I would do if I've got four or five players coming towards me in a warm up, I'd set a camera up 10 or 15 meters back because I haven't got time to individually movement screen every single player. But if I'm getting them doing some kind of up and back warm ups, peel off around the end, up you come, and I'm getting them do a, there's like a cone every three or four, and on that kind of want you to squat. Mm. And then next, second time around, I want you to lunge. Next time around, I want you to jump. I've got all this on video now. Yeah. Right? So I can just go back afterwards. I've got four or five players coming at me. And without it being a clinical stand in front of me, I'm going to coach you how to overhead squat. I'm just getting them to see it do it it naturally. So the timing gate system was using cones. And my mass version of movement screening came from just videoing the warm-ups and, and structure it in a way that I saw that movement in front of me that way. So
0: there was a couple of like, yeah, yeah, shortcuts there that I took to try and do this stuff. And the, the reason I get, I get you to tell those is because not necessarily so people can just go and use them straight away. It's because I thought it was great to tap into the way you thought about designing them because there'll be a, a hundred different things that we could design, won't there? Um, but mm. you're coming back to, again, what we're trying to achieve at that time um, and what restrictions are we facing? And I I just thought it was really important for coaches to hear that because you don't want to be in a, this ties back into optimizing every role that you're in regardless of the restrictions. Like Mm -hmm. if you haven't got speed gates, it doesn't mean you can't test. Like you you can get around it. You've got to be creative with your thinking. And then when you do get into roles where you do have the tech available, great, you can use it. Um, but I just thought it was really important. I thought it was really good um, to, to delve into some of those examples Thanks. that
1: you have. Well, look, look. I mean, when we know there's apps now, right? My Jump and the Sprint app, and you can, you can still use those apps and get that information. But in doing that, think about it. The athletes still not engaged with you in doing that. So in them knowing what cone they were running past and putting a marker down because they jumped so far, there's a level of, level of engagement and interaction there that I feel is kind of, for me, I felt it, the sessions just felt so different when when I got them involved like that than just something went bleep or I'm videoing them on a camera. I don't know. I just I just got a very, very different feel and sense of we're working together with this. Their questions were different.
0: It just created a different level of interaction altogether. For, for me personally, it did anyway. No, brilliant. Nick, I know, I know we're a bit short on time because you've got, you've got stuff to go to, but I, I was just going to finish up because we also spoke about managing large groups as mm-hmm. something that I'd spoke to people that was there's not an issue, but it was a challenge that they were facing and obviously trying to manage individuals within those large groups, whether it comes to in, individual programs. What's your experiences with that? And if you've got anything, I, I know we, we could probably do a whole podcast on this, but Um, in terms of quick tips, like if people have got large groups to work with, how do we manage the individual within that large group? So, you know, let's first of all, what's the problem? So the problem is within a large group, there's often a
1: range of issues that's going on, whether it be weight room technique, sprinting technique, or whatever. So we think, how can I how can I address all the individual issues? Well, when you, when you break that down and you understand your model, this is why it's important to understand the model of sprinting. Not this is how I need my athlete to sprint, but what's a technical model of sprinting from acceleration to upright running. So you're gonna see that, that there's some critical shapes or patterns that you're looking for. So dorsiflexed ankle, for example, knees not running out to the side, for example. So you might spend a session or two doing some generic work, but then a bit, like I said, get some video. I did this with Hull FC, the rugby league team, um, when I was brought in as a speed coach for them. First couple of sessions was warming up, going through drills, you know, um, remembering drills are part of observation of movement mechanics. Drills are there to create some um, structural integrity. So maybe microdosing certain things. They're not about... Developing speed technique where you get to see shapes and patterns and I video. From that, then I can pull back and go, oh, this is what this person's doing. This person isn't making this shape. So it's what we call mailboxing. You know, you come up with like a type A, type B athlete or a type C. Come up with some categorizations that you're going to mailbox people into. Because then you can go to your session design and say, right, Once I've got through the warm-up, or actually these people seem to be really struggling with a level of stiffness, so maybe this section, I've got some hurdle jumps where they're holding. These guys actually are pretty good with stiffness, but they're not really projecting. So these guys are going to project over the hurdles, you know? And then the next bit might be, I'm going to do a medicine board jump where I'm going to land and stick for these people who struggle with stiffness, these people aren't going to land and stick. They're actually going to do three repetitive broad jumps, release the medicine ball, and accelerate out. So you start matching your methods to the problem. You know, So that's how I go around looking at big groups is be patient, understand there's some generalities, know your technical models. So weight room's the same around weightlifting and squatting and stuff like that or whatever techniques you're trying to teach them. Um Find a way to video, categorize, mailbox, then plan your session accordingly. And when those players understand that they're in this category because this is what you've seen, and you can go, hey, look, I can show you it here. But now, of course, you can share a Google folder with them or whatever so they can see it. Um, They think, cool, this guy's actually looking at me. Now, you're not doing it because it's cool. You're doing it because it's the right thing, that you are finding a way to somewhat personalised and individualize that group training session. So hopefully that was helpful.
0: I and think that was a great summary in a, in a minute or so. I <laughs> think that was brilliant. Because, um, again, we spoke about this on the phone a few weeks back and you gave some great depth on it. So I thought um, it would be good just to tie in with that just to, to finish mm-hmm. off. Nick, I could literally talk about this sort of stuff all day and we're going to have to get you back on. But um, – I know you're you're stretched for time, so I appreciate you coming on. Um, if people have got questions, they want to reach out, or generally they just want to follow what's going on with yourself or Altis, where would you direct them?
1: Well, first of all, let me say thank you very much for what you've done um, and what you've brought back to our world. A couple of decades ago, we had a football fitness advisory group that would get together a lot and would spend several hours on the phone chatting to each other and you know, it was just great. So, you know, thank you for what you've done here to create this again, because I think we've gone a decade or so of lots of secrets and people not sharing and and maybe COVID's changed that for us all. You know, we need that social engagement. So thank you for doing that. And I, I'm so pleased to be a part of it and, and hopefully continue. So, um, hey, just email me, n.ward at altis.world. Uh, our website has a number of free resources on there You know, from the Altus Sprint Fit Guide. Uh, if you want a basic sprint program, there it is, the Altus Sprint, Altus sprint Fit Guide. Look at the rudiments uh, series and those things as well on there that fit into warm-ups. And there's a little bit about mailboxing boxing and those things too. Otherwise, um, uh, Nick Ward underscore coach on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. So hey, yeah, great to have a chat, and you know, again, Ben, thanks very much for um, inviting me on and, and, and giving me this
0: opportunity. No, it's brilliant, and I know uh, you guys have got some really cool stuff coming up as well. So everyone needs to make sure that they're keeping an eye out and checking that out as well. Just before you go, Nick, finally, it's Wednesday, the seventh of July. We yeah. are a few hours as we're recording this. We're a few hours away from England semi-final. I've got to get yeah. a prediction. I'm going to do one as well. I'm not just going to put you on the spot. Prediction, England v Denmark, semi-finals of the Euros. What's your prediction? Well, first of all, I hope it doesn't go
1: into extra time because I've got a meeting scheduled with Dan Pass at <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's 4 o'clock my time. So, <laughs> um, Right. Denmark will score first. Ooh. Okay. I think they're going to come at us and we're going to kind of we're holding on to the ball a little bit too much at times, right? So I think they're going to
0: score first, but I think we're going to win two-one. Oh, do you know what? I'm not just saying this. I was going to go two-one, but I think we'll score first. Go on, who's your scorers? You got to have your scorers as well for England scorers. Um, I think uh, Sterling's
1: going to score again, and I'm going to go with McGuire.
0: Okay, I'll go Kane double. Okay, well, I, I'm going to be happy either way. <laughs> Nick, thank you very much, mate. That was amazing. And we need to do another one. Um, Really appreciate your time. And uh, stay in touch. Brilliant, Ben. Thank you. Top man. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And big thank you for Nick for giving up his time and coming on. Go and give him a follow on Twitter at Coach underscore Nick Ward. And you can also go and follow Altis as well to see everything that they've got going on. I know a lot of the coaches we have on the community have gone through the Need for Speed course and they're always checking out the content that Altis are putting out. And speaking to Nick, I know they've got some really exciting stuff coming up as well. So go and give them a follow and check them out. Um, I think in terms of the takeaways on this episode, the one of the early things that Nick spoke about was the tech and science involved in football caused initially caused separation between coaches and practitioners. So it's defining why we use it um, and also trying to bring different people into the decision-making process. And like we've titled this episode, The Problem First Approach, deciding what problems they solve if we're bringing tech and science into the equation. Um, He spoke about his role at Durham, where he was allowed to fail and also took a number of different risks. And speaking to a lot of practitioners before... Many people have been through similar sort of roles um, that have allowed them to do that, which allows them to develop as practitioners. He spoke about the quick wins going into a new role and the sort of first approach that he takes stepping into a new role, thinking about the quick, uh, the quick wins, the, the low-hanging fruit, the non-negotiables, things that people have spoke about before. He said about allowing time for the beer at the bar so when um, you're in these roles and you're busy, you're working between different roles, allow time to um, meet people outside, away from that environment. Um, maybe it is going for a beer, maybe it's going for a coffee, whatever it is, but allow that time, because that allows you to develop relationships. And I know Nick spoke about a lot of practitioners that he developed the relationships with across his career. And I'm sure they came from those sorts of um, conversations. He spoke about um, the problem first approach, like we've we've titled the episode. So that was all based around problem solving, and then also mailboxing athletes. So this is around managing large groups. So using that mailbox box approach and having that system that individuals can fit within allows that individual approach within the team setting. So loads of great stuff in this one for Nick. Um, I also think everything that he was talking about around technological thinking without the technology some of the examples that he gave around testing speed and power and without any tech was absolutely gold so i hope you enjoyed the episode please as always give it a share across social media and uh, like i mentioned at the start i hope to see as many of you as possible at our upcoming networking event on tuesday the 20th of july at qpr academy if you've not got your ticket already go and snap it up go to footballfitfed.com click the shop and just find the event there and make sure you purchase your ticket and then we'll see you on tuesday the 20th 5 till 8 p.m um, with presentation from kieran dealy and i know a few of the qpr staff are going to be there as well so thank you again for listening i'll speak to you again next week in episode 145